Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Fraudology is now sponsored by Spec. I'll provide more information about who they are and what they do later in the episode, but you can also find a link to their website in the show description. I hope you enjoy this new episode of Fraudology brought to you by Spec. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's only the second week of 2023, but at least for me, I feel like it's the 10th week. I think for all of us, this first week of the new year was just, it was a lot catching up, a lot of you know, looking forward while also looking back and depending on the vertical of e-commerce or marketplace you're in or the area of fintech or fraud or finance or crypto, anything like that, there's a lot going on. I know for e-commerce retailers that are starting to get the chargebacks, starting to realize that fraud was as bad as they thought it was over the holiday season and others are finding, wow, we stopped a lot. Uh, different areas of fraud fighting are experiencing different things. But I also think it's really good to take a minute and based on what we saw in 2022, and it was significant. We had a lot of significant changes and upticks. There was more fraud than ever. There was more sophisticated fraud than ever. And on top of that, with the just the economic issues and the bubbles that will be talked about in a few minutes on this episode, we're being expected to do more with less. Fortunately for us, the majority of people who choose to be fraud fighters enjoy a challenge, but sometimes we'd like it easy. Sometimes it would be nice. And sometimes for me, I'd love to provide only good news, but that wouldn't be fair or accurate. I think sometimes I'd be like the weatherman saying, oh, it's going to be sunny and 76 for 76 Fahrenheit for the rest of time, but then have a hurricane show up unexpectedly. So here we are. But speaking of predicting the weather and predicting other things, that is what this episode is about today. And if you have not yet read the 10 predictions for online fraud for 2023 on Frank McKenna's blog, Frank on Fraud, I highly recommend it. And that's what this episode is mostly going to be about. I've long admired Frank McKenna and Marianne Miller for years. They really have been trailblazers in the online fraud industry. They started out in fraud before the majority of people interacted with businesses and financial institutions online. And so they've learned a lot through over those years. Similarly to how I got my start towards the beginning of when credit cards were being processed and accepted online and all of the trial and error that occurred in the beginning still really helps us be able to understand that. And the more years you have under your belt, the more you can be able to say, okay, I see what happened over here. I see what's happening in different areas. Now I can safely say, I think I know it's going to happen. And often those of us in fraud will joke that one of the hardest parts about being a fraud leader is not openly gloating when something happens and you really want to say, I told you so. But this isn't the case. With these predictions, we're more just saying, hey, this is what we think will happen. And I do think that for especially the three of us, for Frank and Marianne and myself, we've been trying to identify the causes of the effects 
for most of our career, right? So we're looking at the effects, whether that's chargebacks or write-offs or charge-offs or anything like that. And we're trying to find the cause. This exercise was really just looking at the cause, different things that have happened in 2022, different things we see happening with regulations and other pieces of that puzzle for 2023, and then estimating the effects. It doesn't mean that we're psychic or we have superpowers and we hope we get some of this wrong. I personally hope we get all of it wrong. I hope none of it comes true, but I have a feeling that's not going to be the case. So anyway, Frank and Marianne for the last several years have had a tradition of writing an article for Frank's blog about their 10 predictions for the new year. And last year they asked me to contribute to one of them. And I did, and they found that fascinating and kind of realized that although they do know quite a bit about e-commerce and marketplaces and all of that, their wealth of knowledge really lies in lending and fintechs and financial institutions and banks. And so they asked me to join them this year in making those predictions. And I was beyond honored. Like it really, I've looked up to them for the majority of my career. They're kind of like fraud fighting heroes in a way. I will say that towards the beginning of our conversation, I asked Frank how many years they'd worked together because I knew it'd been a long time. And he gave a year and I didn't want to say this on the episode, but I was thinking, oh my gosh, I was almost graduating high school when I started working together. Oh my gosh. But that is not to say that anyone's old. It's to say that they are more experienced and have more wisdom for sure. And it wasn't that many years later that I started in this world. So you know, we're really going to dive in. We gave 10 predictions on the article and they're in depth. And yes, it's a long article, but it is such a good and fun read. Frank did most of the writing and it's really, I just really enjoy his writing. It's very vivid and engaging and interesting. It doesn't read like a book report. And so I highly recommend reading it if you haven't, obviously. We didn't just, like I said, you know, each one of us has different areas of experience. And so we came together and it was fun. We worked on it for two weeks, mostly via text messages and phone calls throughout the holiday time. And uh, on today's episode, we're going to get to dive into a few of those. We talked a fair amount about what we saw in 2022 and what we're seeing shift just with the 10,000 foot view of fraud. I think for a lot of fraud fighters, you have to only focus on kind of the ground, right? I use the metaphor sometimes as Google Street View versus Google Satellite. And I think it's still important to have both views. And so that's what I try to do with phrenology as much as I can. That's what Frank does with Frank on Fraud. That's what Marianne does with a lot of her posts on LinkedIn. Frank and I also are active on LinkedIn as well. So we came together and came these up and some are a little more banking specific and some are a little more e-commerce specific. At the same time, all of those lines are getting blurry. There's so many fraud methods and schemes and tactics that are being used in all areas and verticals these days. I think it was safe to say that 10 years ago, it made sense why we didn't all talk with each other and say, hey, what are you seeing over there? And what are, here's what I'm seeing over here. But now it's Fraudsters don't care, right? If you are a bank or a peer-to-peer lending or peer-to-peer money transfer or e-commerce or a marketplace, they're going to find a way to steal from you. And chances are they'll find similar ways to similar companies, similar exploits. This was an opportunity for us to get together and talk a little bit about what's changing and shifting and then dive into a couple of the predictions. We aimed to dive into three while we are within our time limit, but I think we got to a half. And I think that you'll find it really interesting. The article's already been read by over 10,000 people internationally in just a few days. And it's been cited by some top executives at large financial institutions as really, there's just been a lot of really great things said about it on LinkedIn and reposts and things like that. So 
this conversation and this interview was an opportunity for us to dive in a little bit deeper on some of them than we could have on the blog. And then I really hope that you go read the article. I mean, I just think it's really helpful. There are some people who are working to have sent it out to their teams to say, hey, I think it's good for you to know what you know the overall fraud industry is is seeing or what you know is being predicted. Other people are using this to send to their leadership or point out to their leadership in a meeting that, hey, we're not the only ones seeing this or this is going to get worse before it gets better. And here's an article that I can cite because half the time in fraud fighting, we're still emerging. There's not a lot of facts or information or printed information specifically about what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. So I'm really happy that it's being used as a resource like that already. And uh, Frank and Marianne and I talked about possibly coming back to fraudology, uh, having them back to fraudology at the mid-year mark. To kind of see where we were at, right? How on the nose were we? What did we miss? There's always going to be at least one thing that nobody could predict that will change a lot. Well, and we kind of already saw that last week, right? With the episode I had on the two very large breaches between LastPass and Twitter. Since that episode, Twitter, uh, the hacker has released 265-ish million records. And I know several people personally that were a part of that. And we can definitely expect to see some fallout in financial fraud in different ways from that, whether it's specifically from that list or whether some pieces are patch marked with other data. We know that's a source for fraud. So with that, I'm just really excited for you to get to listen in on this conversation with two of my fraud heroes. And I think that if you have not learned from them before, you will enjoy it. Frank has been on Fraudology a few times now. The first episode, I think, was like episode 20 back in 2020 when he talked about his career path and talked a lot about how much Marianne was a part of it. And they've worked together formally as well as informally. And they just are such a good balance. I was grateful to be able to join in with them. And whenever I get to talk to either one of them individually or together, I have an aha moment. And I certainly did on this conversation, too. So I look forward to hearing what your aha moment is of this conversation, and I'll talk to you more on Thursday. I have been looking forward to today for a few weeks now. Marianne Miller and Frank McKenna, thank you so much for both of you to make time to join me on Fraudology and talk about your predictions for 2023, our predictions for 2023. Yeah, this is always my favorite time of the year. And uh, we had a, had a great time with you guys coming up with these predictions over the last few weeks. And so glad we finally got a chance to publish them and now talk about them. Yeah, Chris, I just love this collaboration. And I think that this year, our predictions are really getting a lot of attention. I'm seeing LinkedIn, very active Twitter, so I think we have some great things to talk about today. I agree. And I kind of joke sometimes that I would love to provide good news at some point, you know, like, oh, if all fraud is going down. But then I think I chose the wrong profession. They wanted to tell people good news. Um, and it's kind of, I don't know. So actually, Frank, I have a question first. You know, you kind of started doing predictions a few years ago and brought in Marianne. And then last year and this year, I feel lucky that you guys have brought me in as well to balance out the different areas that we all see. And what made you think that, or what made you want to start doing this? And especially, do you worry that you're scaring people at the beginning of the year? Or is that kind of the point, right? Like, hey, we can't get complacent. No, and actually, I've never done a prediction blog without Marianne. So oh, I've never done it. And I've sense. been lucky. And then I think 
last year we had kind of, I'd reached out to you and you had given a great prediction I didn't even know about. And what occurred to me is if you actually pull together experts and come up with predictions, you're better than a single person because you have a different perspective, Greece, than Marianne, and I have a different perspective than Marianne. So just getting this well-rounded view is, I think, what I love because I could come up with 10 predictions, but I think they would be uh, boring. <laughs> they probably would be just <laughs> a little sphere, but... I doubt um, that, but right, but it would be more to the companies that you work with. Little, right. Yeah. So I think the thing I like about it is making sense of the prior year and just you know, kind of what is what did happen and what's how's that going to change this year and i think that's where we kind of that's where we see the trends and i love the big picture trends that's what i like about doing this end of year blog yeah and actually if anyone didn't listen to the first episode i had with frank a couple of years ago i remember when you were talking about your history you and marianne have been working together in different capacities for I don't know how many years, but a very long time. Let's see. The first time I talked to Marianne was 1996. Wow. I did an interview for Agency Software, and she was my first interview there. And she, I was like, wow, I got to, after I talked to her, I, was, I really wanted to work there. Because I was like, if I get to work with Marianne, this is going to be amazing. Yeah. So what is that? 25 years? Wow. 26. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I Yeah, I think it's incredible. And you guys both balance each other out in a lot of ways and thinking about big picture and so on, just different perspectives, but similar. And I'm. it's always fun when I talk with either one of you individually or together, I feel like I walk away smarter yeah. and thinking about things in a different way. Because again, we have different perspectives. And I think that's another reason why so many people have been listening to fraudology is I hear people say, gosh, I, you know, I talk to some of the people in my department all the time, you know, about fraud at our, in our company, but it's so cool to listen to other people talk about it from their perspective because it's a little bit different. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know, right? And you don't have time to look up at the 10,000 foot view. So yeah. And I got to speak with Marianne at an event last year and actually played it on the podcast right afterward, replayed it yeah. then. And that was really fun too. I I felt like a fangirl. I was so excited to meet her in person. (laughs) And so speaking of going back, Frank, you just said it so well, as far as one of the things you like is looking at the big picture from the year prior. And that's where you started in the blog. And I think it was so well done. And I thought we could just spend the first few minutes talking about some of the big changes and big impacts to online fraud that we saw in 2022. Marianne, do you want to kind of start that off? Yeah, I'd love to, Chris. And one, you know, there's so much that happened in 2022. If you think about it, we're just coming off of all of the fraud from the pandemic, all of the PP fraud and the unemployment insurance fraud and all the creativity that happened when our lives went online. 2022 didn't let us down at all. We saw, I think the one fraud that really stood out and what we observed from that year was the tremendous spike in deposit fraud. You know, we've mm. got this problem nationally where mail carriers are being accosted and they're for their hero keys and we have all of the worst checks. Well, of course, many of that, a lot of that cash outs occurring because of the fact there's fake accounts that are opened up and then it's easy to deposit these worst checks. So that was remarkable because in the past, deposit fraud was a part of doing business and something that was budgeted for every year. But 
as I understand, those budgets really were torn apart this year. And that was something that really stood out to me as both a deposit fraud issue, crime issue, and also an identity issue. So that one really stood out. Yeah, Frank and I talked about that a couple months ago on Fraudology because I didn't know much about check and deposit fraud because that's not the world I live in most of the time. And I was so confused about, wait, checks? People, like, we don't use them very much, but he did a really good job of explaining all those things about you know the fact that part of it's because the banks stopped investing in it because the, the median consumer wasn't writing as many checks, right? They weren't writing a check at the grocery store anymore. They weren't writing at different places. Businesses felt like it's way safer to know the automatic, you know, have an automatic authorization on a card than it is checks, but there's still so many checks that are mailed all the time. I can think of several circumstances where my, my mom is sending a check to somebody and I sent her a pack of the Unipol script pens for Christmas, actually well, before Christmas, but early. And though, but it was because of that episode. And I just, and then also, yeah, all the crime. And every time I see Frank Albert, Albergo, is that his name, Frank? That, yeah. The other Frank that um, posts a lot yeah. on LinkedIn. I'm just thinking, how is no one else covering this? Why are no other journalists, maybe some local news here and there, but like, why is this not on national headlines? That's good you sent your mom those pens. My mom on Christmas Day t- turned to me and said, hey, somebody opened up all my Christmas cards oh, no. before they reached. She sends, she has 24 grandkids and she sent oh, them yeah. checks. But oh, somebody sliced open them and took all the checks out. So she's going to get hit with check fraud. So I wish I bought her those ballpoint prints. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That we can go down the hall and think about calling her bank. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, I actually learned that from Meredith McClary, who was on the podcast too. She mentioned that and I was like, oh, I didn't even know. But yeah, it, well, and Amazon had them on sale on the daily thing. And so I got a whole bunch and sent them to my mom and myself. Um, but yeah, and but Mariana, it's interesting that you talk about the deposit side because I usually, when I'm thinking about check fraud, I'm thinking about the mail carrier side and the violence that happens in getting those checks. But then when they're washed, the banks that you're working with are often seeing those deposited into essentially fake accounts, right? Or synthetic ID or identity theft. It's not as much mule as it is they're creating their own just for depositing. Yeah. And increasingly, you'll see a couple of different things. You'll see someone who's tricked into depositing the check or paying mm, the yeah. check. Or you'll see uh, certainly accounts that are, have been opened up under someone else's identity or a synthetic or using a synthetic identity that are sold in, say, an underground forum like Telegram. So you'll see a lot of that. The bad actors, they have many mechanisms in order to, you know, what I call, first they wash the check, they alter the amount of the check, they change the payee, and then they deposit those checks. And those become an in, what they call an in-clearing check. And then most banks give a preliminary funds availability um, and it's exited. And then if the check happens to fully deposit, then they get the whole amount. So it's very lucrative. And I know some banks that are actually... They have so many returns that they haven't processed. It's putting a huge operational burden on the banks as well. Not only it's affecting customers yeah. who have to suffer through the claims, but they also have these huge operational burdens with the return process. And not to get too 
down a rabbit hole before we even start talking about predictions, but we knew that could happen. You know, you mentioned the all of the fraud from the pandemic. And as you talked about the different ways that they do it, it's so, so with the bank accounts and deposits and transfers, it's so similar to what they were doing with unemployment fraud and PPP fraud. So it makes mm-hmm. complete sense that they are applying those skills, so to speak, to something new, right? They had to find a bank account to deposit unemployment funds in. And sometimes they would find somebody and offer them money to do it and then send it to a different account. Other times they would set up their own accounts. And with neobanks and the banks that, you know, often are VC funded and their main goal is account creation, which we will be talking about in one of these predictions soon, that then becomes an even higher risk for them because they're looking so much at opening new accounts. It can be challenging to for the fraud and identity department to say, hey, we need to like however percentage in some cases up to 70% of these are bogus and we're going to lose money on them. We've had those conversations, they're hard. Carice, I think you brought up a really good point. Just use the term identity department. Yeah. And I talk to many organizations, banks included, (laughs) ask the question, who owns identity? Yeah. Their finger pointing goes across the table, you know, and then of course, here's the department that owns the KYC process. But that's just generally a box checking activity to ensure this is Marianne's name, her social security number, her date of birth and address, what is commonly known as entity resolution. But it doesn't answer the question, did Marianne present her that her own information in the blouse? And so I think there it's a good question for anyone listening to this podcast today to really go back to their organization and say, who owns identity? <laughs> who understands identity? And when I say identity, I'm really am talking about digital identity proofing. Yeah, it, that's changed over the years. Because I spoke at an identity summit several years ago, and it was interesting, the titles of different people that were there, sometimes for energy companies or cable companies or others, but they were like the auditor. It's like, what? how does that, you know, but oftentimes it's kind of by default, it's the fraud department. I feel like some of the newer banks have identity departments or people that are in charge of identity, which is important. But for a lot of existing companies, to your point, it's usually a small function of bigger role that has so many other things that they have to focus on, too. It's There's not one person or one team. And I think with all this information that's coming out, I talked about the recent hacks from Twitter to LastPass is keeping me up at night at this point. Like all of those, we can't rely on that anymore. We can't rely on, okay, this information matches what the right information is for Carice or Marianne or Frank. Okay, but are you going to prove that I'm the one that's doing it? Because if not, you're going to have to give back that money at some point. Frank, I guess from your perspective, what was one of the bigger takeaways from 2022? Mm. And then we'll... Oh, yeah. Yeah. This thing about 2022, I think I agree with everything Marianne said, by the way. What struck me about 2022 was how we were in so many simultaneous bubbles Hmm. at once. There was a real estate bubble and there was a crypto bubble. And there was like a, I don't know, like a stock market bubble. And Mm -hmm. everything was bubbling all at once. And in the process of that, I think we all knew, suspected there was probably a ton of fraud happening. Yeah. Living in the middle of it. And if you're in fraud, you're like, this ain't going to end. Sure enough, you have the crypto. Just mm. uh, probably one of the worst frauds, probably maybe the worst fraud of all time. 
you know, committed by a 25 year old guy in a t-shirt who was worth $9 billion. And then the next day was worth nothing because of fraud and just massive amounts of fraud. Yeah. Way more than Bernie Madoff. Like it was, I actually saw, yeah, I saw a clip of him today because, you know, his proceedings are happening and stuff. And and he just has a smirk on his face that I wanted to smack off. So I wish to smack his face. Like, yeah, Yeah. I don't know what you're smirking about, buddy. Cause like, that doesn't mean you're smart. (laughs) It's just, then it just struck me that this is fraud is all around us. Right. It's like we're in the midst of it and people that you would never expect. And we talk about in the blog, right? You just, the bad guys don't look like the bad guys anymore. They look like everybody. They're mm-hmm. young guys. They're YouTube influencers. They're young kids on Telegram. Everybody's a victim now. You know, like we talk oh. even in this podcast, our parents, yourselves, yeah. everybody you know. And so that to me is what struck me about 2022 is just how pervasive it is. And that those crypto frauds that happened. Marianne talked about check fraud, these young people getting into stealing checks out of the mail. You had all of the kind of the scams getting worse called pig butchering. So you're talking about scams where they're so inhumane, right? And the people coming up with the scam names are even like treating victims like pigs. And it's just this whole, this attitude around what's happening with victims and how everybody's a victim. And then And then I thought that what was really interesting is that the government starting to get really involved in fraud now from... Little late, but yes, at least in the US, right? I would say the EU and UK have, they have like departments of fraud and things like that. But in the US especially, it's been enough, it's been the Wild West for years and years in tech, in, you know, I mean, banking has regulations, but is it enough? It's not protecting everyone. It's not, right? And the government, after the government probably had the worst fraud perpetrated through stimulus programs mm. of all time, then they're blasting banks for fraud. It's like the government is pointing the finger and they should probably look at themselves too because they created the worst stimulus program ever for fraud. And a lot of us that know a lot of things about all of that know that there was blame to go around. There was blame, yeah. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. 
Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. There are only so many things I say on public platforms and you're the same way, but like it's any of us were asked what where we thought the blame lied. I think we distributed a few different places, but I think the <laughs> I know for a fact that the government is one of them. It's a new year, and Fredology has a new sponsor, technically a returning sponsor. I'm thrilled and quite honored that Spec has returned to sponsor the content and community of Fredology for the first quarter of 2023. When they sponsored Fredology last year, their full name was Spec Trust. They've since simplified it just to spec. They feel like that embodies their mission to create the platform that unites teams, data, and tools to unlock customer experiences that begin with instant trust. And since that time that they were a sponsor, I've had the opportunity to get to know the team and their insanely impressive platform even more. That platform provides much needed fraud infrastructure to e-commerce, marketplaces, and fintechs allowing them visibility into the entire customer journey. And it eliminates the dependency on internal engineering teams as it's truly a no-code platform. That enables fraud fighters to spend more time fighting fraud than fighting internal resources. I'm really looking forward to getting to share more with you over the next several weeks about the truly unique and groundbreaking possibilities that SPEC is providing to enterprise companies to create trust within the entire customer journey. In the meantime, to learn more about what makes SPEC worth your time to learn about, go to www.specprotected.com. Yeah, you're right. It's digging in. They're asking all these questions. Well, why did it happen? Okay, but while you're asking those questions about that fraud, there's six or seven or eight new <laughs> types of fraud being created every day. You, I, you really touched on something that we could spend an hour talking about each one of these topics, but kind of how we, it does feel like we're in scam culture right now, for sure. I mean, whether we're talking about you know, some of the documentaries or docu-series from inventing Anna to the Tinder swindler to whatever else, I mean, people are fascinated by it and there's so many podcasts about specific ones and all that, but then there's all these people, yeah, YouTubers and social media influencers who are lying or there was that one that was the F factor diet. That was a crazy what I listened to a podcast about mm -hmm. that. That was fascinating. But it definitely is. And I think a big part of that is because on the internet, you can be anyone you want to be. Yeah. And people are also so trusting, though. They aren't thinking mm -hmm. about that. It does go back to identity. Yeah. Right? Like they aren't thinking about, wow, they could just be making all of this up. No, yeah. they trust who you say you are. Yeah. Fast money, fast fraud. That's what's happened. Everybody thinks they're worth a billion dollars and... They commit fraud and they get that money and they don't care and there's no consequences. And yeah. it's just, that's why you got Sam Bankman Fried smirking because does he care about the victims? No. no. Yeah. Not at all. I think he's proud of himself that he did so much and got away with it and thinks that means he's smart. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah, uh, is he thinking? And the people who had a lot already, they'll be fine. It's the people who didn't, who were influenced by... Yeah the celebrities that were paid to endorse that, that I yeah. get worked up about. I know you guys do too. I had Steven Sargent on the podcast right around that time when FTX was first happening. And we were talking about that as well. And just how, or the Bahamas, you know, everybody in the Bahamas, he was bringing 
all these big jobs. People were buying houses because they thought they had a stable income and stable career because he was building their operations there. Yeah. So I had said we were going to spend 10 minutes on 2022, but there we go. I feel like I could keep her the clock, but I just love it. It's so fascinating to me whenever we get together. And it's not often that the three of us get to talk. So that's fun too. So the first prediction that we kind of wanted to pull out because knowing that there were 10 and we just had 45 minutes uh, with three of us, the first one we wanted to point out, and we've talked about some of these things already, but scam. So prediction number two was scam reimbursement will bring new path and new investment in fraud controls. Yep. That's going to be, there's, this is going to be a area of a lot of challenges for banks and it's going to be an area of a lot of investment. So I think banks are going to put a lot of money into this in 2023 and Marianne, I'm sure has a perspective on this, but you know, what happened, the trajectory we're seeing here in the United States is exactly what happened in the UK in 2016. Mm. So it's not, when we talk about predicting the future, yeah. All we're doing is going back to 2016 and saying, what happened in the UK when they had mm. their blow up? And that's what happened to us in the UK. I don't know if you know this, but I think it was the CEO of RBS yep. said something publicly. He said, uh, <laughs> we don't, customers are at fault for fraud. And he said yep. that and the media took it. For the, the US, this last year had a very similar moment when all the CEOs of the banks got in front of Senator Warren. And she just blasted them <laughs> and it played well to the public because everybody got outraged. Even though you look at the numbers, Zell fraud in terms of the context is not any higher than Venmo fraud. It's actually lower or Cash App. It's actually lower. It's just the banks and everybody loves to punch the banks. So mm -hmm. banks now have to reimburse customers. They voluntarily agreeing to do that, which is exactly what happened in the UK. So now we just right. need to look at What's the next step? And it's going to it's going to be a never ending road. It's going to be the banks are going to be benchmarked against each other, just like they are in the UK. And some banks are going to be get A's and some are going to get F's. Hmm. And they're going to want re consumers to get reimbursed more and more. So they're going to look at each bank and say, "You only reimbursed twenty percent of the victims," and then they're going to push them to do more. Hmm. So once you open up, it's a slippery slope. So we're going to see that. Banks being benchmarks, being forced to do more and more. And then you're going to have the fraudsters who love to be very opportunistic. And Marianne, I know you, you have strong feelings about Yes, that. and I want her to talk about that. But first, I wanted to just in case anyone, I it was my fault because I read, just read the prediction and I didn't really explain it. But for people who aren't in the banking world, a lot of people have listen, their company takes liability for fraud, especially because mostly they take card payments, right, or ACH or things like that. But what we're talking about is these P2P, these peer-to-peer -peer payment companies, whether it's Venmo or Cash App or Zelle. And we're saying their names because they're in the news and because the fraudsters talk about them all the time, too, and they know that. But I also know that those companies listen. So that's why I'm like, sorry, I'm not blasting you. I think you, we all know about it. It's an open secret or not so secret. But the point is right now, when a consumer is scammed, and they, the payment method is one is a peer-to-peer -peer money mm -hmm. transfer. The consumer is out that money. And they, because of a lot, I mean, I have some strong theories about this. I think a lot of it has to do with chargeback rules because consumers are very used to not having responsibility if they lose money. And they're not being told that ahead of time. Hey, heads up, if this is a scam, it's going to be on you. And, you know, they're not being educated at all. That's another problem I have with you know, this is, I mean, maybe a little bit, but not enough because 
any company can tell a consumer, don't do this, but you need to tell them the why. You need to tell them the pain point. And that's where they, a lot of them fall short. Yeah. Don't give money to somebody that you don't know. Okay. But what if it's somebody that I bought something on Facebook Marketplace for, or what if it is? Well, okay. I hear that. Actually, yeah. Zell has been running commercials on some podcasts lately with the top three. I keep meaning to do a LinkedIn post about the top three things to like prevent fraud, but they just say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. It goes in one ear out of the other, whether you're a child or you're an adult. We have too many other things in our lives. So I just wanted to like backtrack a little bit to explain it that now yeah. that now that there's been so much attention on it and because Zelle is run by all the banks, there were some feelings that the banks weren't doing as much as they could. And you, the three of us know how much data banks do have on what's normal activity for people and things like that, that they probably could have. But because it wasn't their liability, they didn't invest in that. Well, yeah. we're headed towards now it's your liability. So now you're going to invest in that. And that's exactly why that prediction makes sense. Yeah. But Marianne, I'd love for you to share it. Like Frank set it up so well for you as far as, because this is something I've only just recently learned from you and someone else that worked with you a few years ago as well. So I'm sure they learned it from you as well about what fraudsters are doing to optimize this too, when there is an opportunity to claim fraud. Yeah. So Chris, it's, I, I think everything that Frank talked about around the heated conversations around scams and around um, consumers disadvantages when it comes to scams. I think what we'll see is we, we'll probably see some rules change. We'll probably see banks again put put forth their right hand by reimbursing customers. But this is, what, and we know this from the merchant world and we know this from the card world, that what the fraudsters do is they misrepresent that process and they actually exploit those processes. It's even more complex in the P2P world because what you're doing is, and it ties a little bit into the card world, is um, the fraudsters will open up an account and they'll use a, it'll be identity theft, a fake, a fake name. It'll be a synthetic fraud. It'll be a fabricated person. And what they do is they'll deposit that money. You'll, you'll see lack of direct debits. You'll see lack of paying utility bills out of that account. But you will see money deposited and money moved through the P2P platforms. And then you will see the customer claim, quote unquote, customer claim that it was a scam. And that's what will happen. And you'll start to see that the bad actors, and it's a lot easier to make those claims, and it's cash. I don't have to wait for that chargeback of right. debit card. This is pure cash. And we will start to see what's going to happen is this intermingling of customers who are truly victims. I mean, victims of very harsh and sad scams right. mixed in with the bad actors. And this is one who did a scam on their account. And then, oh, oops, I was like, my account was taken over. So now I need that money back again. And this is where it all goes back to. And I know we brought up identity previously, but, you know, this identity proofing and really understanding who is at the other end of that digital interaction. And every moment, you know, onboarding is important, but ongoing interactions. You know, you have this original, you know, the initial identity proofing, but then you have your ongoing authentication and continual identity proofing. So that's a really important. I think, well, again, identity is at the core of so many of these frauds. And because of the fact that the fraudsters love living behind those big identities, whether they're on a, a payments platform or whether they're on a social media platform, they just love that. It's so easy to do because new data is being breached all the time. And I've definitely seen that from the merchant world where there's a change of focus. I mean, we're still focused on checkout, but it 
10, 15 years ago, we only like the fraud department would only look at activity at checkout, right? When they're making a purchase, when they're using a credit card. But because of account takeovers over the last 10 years, and it's varied by vertical, you know, it was first online gaming and then event ticketing and then theme parks and travel and digital goods. And then now into physical too, we really need to know who's logging in, right? Who is interacting with that? Is it the same types of interactions that they do every time? And you can't just say, oh, is the IP address really similar? Because that can be emulated, right? There's, you know, knowing what the fraudsters can do helps you know what defenses you need to put in place. That's right. And speaking of defenses, just for the audience who are thinking about their strategy when it comes to scams is get those digital identity signals. Look for activity on the account, like constant change of phone number or mm-hmm. constant change of address. You know, look for those definite indications that something's not right with this account where there's a possibility that it could be and end up being a false claim of a scam reimbursement. So there's uh, definitely what I call red flags that you can look for. That's so important. I think it's hard enough for companies, you know, whatever kind of dispute it is, right, to just know, okay, is this, do we need to pay them back? And then now it's, we also need to check the identity at the time of dispute as well. And I think personally myself, and I think all the other merchants might have a little bit of schadenfreude about the fact that banks are now going to have to really face some friendly fraud issues where oh, it's your money now that you're giving out. So you're not just going to file a claim all the time because it's someone else's money. And the people in banking know that I'm, I know that's not your fault. (laughs) You didn't create those liability rules, but it really is whoever owns the liability, whoever owns that hot potato is the one that's going to have to invest in it. So I think that's a really good one. It's just moving on to the next one that we wanted to point out was prediction number three. And the title of that was high attack rates will force some banks to turn off digital acquisition. And I think that, again, that comes back to identity where we saw so many different what you talked about, in the, the or to the, Frank did most of the, like 95% of the work on the article. We just contributed a little bit at the end, but it was so well written. And, you know, what he talked about a lot was the fact that we saw PayPal close 4.5 million accounts because of the acquisition fraud where there were literally just, and I talked about this on the podcast back then, like there were literally bots set up just to create accounts because PayPal and Venmo wanted to increase their number of accounts that they had because so much to focus on growth. And that's where the valuations of tech companies come in is growth. You start giving incentives like that in any company that has any kind of incentives like that, or even referral programs for like food delivery, they all get exploited in this way where, you know, they set up bots and created 4.5, at least 4.5 million accounts. That's $450 million that those fraudsters cashed out because they got 10 bucks in their PayPal or their Venmo account and just transferred it. Yeah, and Crystal actually, you know, when that was made public- Wait, you know, $45 million. I'm watching Frank do the math. I'm like, wait, no, it's- <laughs> Wow, I have a billion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Late in the day, my coffee's wearing off. And $45 million is still nothing to laugh about. <laughs> No, but I, th- I think what happened, Carissa, is the fact that, and I give people a lot of credit for disclosing. Oh, 100%. Because I think don't. that was a really good thing that they did. But what, what happened, though, is it did affect their stock price. Oh, yeah. Temporarily. And so I think what we're looking at is it opened up the conversation is about all the bots and all the fake accounts. And also with Elon's discussion on Twitter that we talked about last year, Frank, speaking of last year, the cat's out of the bag. It's out of the bag now. And we're definitely seeing that conversation. That's a positive for our industry because 
And in fact, now we can start to have those conversations at the sea level where before it was mm-hmm. you know, very difficult. It was, yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Can you name? I could. I would. I never would. So many large companies, especially in tech at a Silicon Valley that have risen up and become big brands in the last five to 10 years that have disclosed to me privately how bad their fake accounts are, just how many they have and how they are not allowed to put any kind of prevention or any kind of any kind of digital identity product at the account creation part because they have advised their leadership and the C-suite. A lot of these are being taken advantage of and we're losing money on these. And I don't care because that's how I get my valuation. That's how I get when we go to the stock market and we say how many you know m- millions of accounts we have. And when I posted about that on LinkedIn, when PayPal did it, so I was so glad they did because then I was able to say, well, there's a lot of companies that do this because valuations are are based on growth, percentage of growth. And at some point you're gonna run out of numbers that pe- actual people to grow. Isn't that, that a Ponzi like 50, scheme? Thousand people. Isn't that a Ponzi scheme then? Yeah. Sorry, if, you got, if you're create, if you're just letting fake accounts come in to boost mm. your valuation so that you get a higher valuation, so you can sell it off in a public offering or whatever, that's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, we saw one of the largest venture capital firms actually create their own fraud department recently, and I found that really interesting when they were advertising for that position. I, you know, I. Looking for fake accounts on portfolio. Basically, yeah. That was what I gleaned from the job description. Yeah, it was. I think that a lot of things on my profile matched up with what they were looking for. So it was sent to my inbox. And I was like, interesting. Probably because. And why why was Elon Musk adamant about the bots and fake accounts before he bought it? And then after you don't hear anything more Mm -hmm. now that he owns it. Right. Yeah. There's a heck of a lot more. Well, and two things I was going to say about that too. And there's actually like big businesses around bots just for people who want to get followers on Instagram or Twitter and things like that. And they're with AI, they can make comments and do all these things. And you can literally filter in what you want the demographics to look like of those bots and all that. But then also, Marianne, as you were talking about just how, you know, how there's so much more attention on bot activity at the C-suite, businesses in the sneaker industry with very limited supply and high demand or event ticketing. We could name some big stars, but I won't because I have friends that work for those companies that were maybe in the news about it. But all of those things, we see bot, we've seen bots there for years, but now everyone's seeing it. My worry is now that we're seeing what we used to refer to as human bot farms, now we know that it's often human trafficking out of really poor countries, refugee, economic refugees from Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe, that I'm worried that we're going to start, as companies start to invest in bot detection and more identity as they need to, that we, because that's the trend we're seeing in e-commerce now with these coordinated att- attacks is, okay, we recognize, they they can tell by how quickly we can do it and all these different detections. Now we need a human to like point and click and do that. And then it spurs on. I worry about that, the human tool on that as well as we, that might be a few years out where we really see a change, but. But that's where you talk about the increase your different layers. You have your firewall, which helps a little bit with the bots. And then you have another layer, which are your endpoint solutions that really protect that password reset or protect that login. But then you have your identity proofing layers as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I, I think as long as you take a healthy look at it, you can both cover for both kinds of scenarios, both the automated scripted bot attacks, which I've seen full account opening 
Yeah. See, oh, yeah. Or, like you said, the unfortunate slavery farms that you have in different countries where people are being held hostage to, to just do fraud, more or less. And th- those there's actually solutions out there that can start to address those right. things. Yeah, it's like better than others. Some of them will, you know, claim that. So you've got to watch for them too sometimes. But no, I'm with you on that as far as I've often said, and it's so cheesy, but I think all of us have seen the movie Shrek and how Shrek says that ogres have layers. I have <laughs> always used to have a slide. Like, I mean, I still do some fraud trainings, but when I would go to conferences and do, you know, two or three hour fraud trainings, ogres have layers, but fraud solutions need to have even more layers. And it's cheesy, but like it sticks in your head and you need to have yeah, so many because you're right. There's different types of and really what it comes down to is what if a business or a bank or anyone can make money or store money or transfer money from a good or a service or a business model, then fraudsters will figure that out, too. And it won't just be one way. It won't just be through one door. It'll be through a window. It'll be through a crawl space. It'll be through everywhere. If we're, I'm just mixing analogies now, but that's really what we're talking about, right? In this article, as well as in everything. Yeah. And what I do love about the blog every year, Carissa, is and one of the reasons Frank and I talked about it years ago, why we wanted to start doing this is we wanted to support our fraud fighting community for one thing. But what we have found over the years, it's gained so much popularity that it ends up on CEOs' desks hmm. and it ends up on very high levels That's my hope. in the organization. And what it does then, it helps the fraud teams yep. actually to have January investment discussions, January strategy discussions, January customer protection discussions. You know, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And when I know all the, all the years, Frank and I have been at the Hill Sometimes the fraud teams wouldn't get that attention. They, they still I think there's a lot of people listening that still feel like they don't get that attention for yeah. sure. But that's yeah. been my, yeah, that's my hope with this article, as well as I'm working on a benchmarking survey for the e-commerce merchant industry from a merchant perspective of the information and benchmarks that they need to be able to do their job better, to benchmark themselves. But also, I can't tell you how many times I have large companies saying, hey, I can't get budget unless I can tell my, unless I can compare my CEO and say, this is where all of our competitors are and this is where we are. And there really hasn't been one that's existed, fortunately or unfortunately, because a lot of those surveys are created by solution providers who just may not understand what is actually needed in the trenches, what actual data or questions need to be asked. And I see that with this article as well, Marianne, and I hope that's the case is that people are using it almost as a roadmap and they understand that the three of us, between the three of us, like Frank said earlier, we have pretty good hold on it. And it's been interesting. There's been a couple of comments on LinkedIn and other places that I've heard, hey, what about this or that? But for the most part, what I'm hearing is, wow, this is really spot on. That's great. Yeah, I knew that this would happen so quickly. We are at time and between the three of us, it was not easy to find a time that works, but I just thank you both so much. And I really hope and I am sure that everyone listening will go read the blog for the other eight predictions because, and Frank, you did such a good job of also making it a fun read. It's long, but it's fun and interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think still think we should do the podcast before the podcast. The green room? <laughs> the green room, because that's where the real 
that's where we get down to the real nitty gritty. What do you think? <laughs> I think that I need to consult a lawyer before I would ever record some of the conversations the three to... of us have before we press record. Yeah. <laughs> but I just appreciate both of you so much. I feel like I've, I've looked up to both of you for a big part of my career. And it's just so fun to get to be peers and get to have these higher level conversations. Because as much as it's important and good to know the details, I do think that our industry needs those of us who are fortunate enough to get to work with a lot of companies and start to put together that big picture. Yeah. They need us to help tell them about it too, because it's like the difference between Google Street View and Google yeah. Satellite, right? Did you, what about a podcast? Who's your fraud compadre? Everybody's got a fraud compadre, <laughs> right? Like you're like that. Everybody's got their they do. partner. I have a couple actually for yeah. different things. Is that, yeah. I don't know. Is that me? I think everybody, that's probably a good topic. Who's <laughs> your fraud compadre? This yes. Fraud. fraud pod. This is the fraud pod. But yes, but your fraud, yeah, your fraud squad, as some people yeah. call it as well. Yeah, I have. I'm so fortunate to know somebody. And you obviously, Frank and Marianne are the fraud compadres. And just, I can't even imagine all the good you guys have done for the industry. And I just appreciate it so much. And so fun to do this. And as much as I think the other thing I'd say just towards the end is some of these topics can be really depressing if you think about them for a long time. When you think yeah. about what the impacts are to small businesses and what the impacts are to big businesses and to consumers and all of that. But People, to yeah. be able to work with the three, the two of you and like the three of us working together, I think that we're also able, obviously, to have some laughs and be and look at it from almost like a researcher perspective or academic perspective and yeah. uh, keep some distance. Whereas I think if it was just me doing it, I might spend too much time mm. thinking about the impacts of each one. Exactly. Yeah. It can get depressing, but. You, we keep it light, so that's good. Well, yeah, and I think that the benefit of that is I'd much rather have someone tell me the forecast in advance if there's a big storm coming yeah. than find out about it during the storm. And yeah. so I think that's the purpose of the blog article that the three yeah. of us worked on. And but this there's, conversation there's, one, there's one prediction that we know uh -oh. will come true. We're still going to get shocked at something. Mm. I don't know what we did. You're there's so going right. to be something unexpected we could have <laughs> never said, and it's going to blow us away. Even more than anything else that's ever blown us away before, that will happen this year. Yeah, I think you're right, Frank. Absolutely. We talk about only predicts much. <laughs> mini black swan event, I think. Yeah, there's happen. something crazy is going to happen. We're going to go, what? How? There, yeah, yeah. And why am I worried that I'm going to be the one that brings that up? Just because yeah. with Black Friday and all that. I, I find it on your LinkedIn, like I was like, <laughs> oh, there's well. Yeah, right. I know. Yeah. I, I'm so lucky that so many people, they see something weird and fraud. And the first thing they think is, oh, I should tell Curry. Curry. Yep. <laughs> but then again, sometimes I'm like, did you have to text me at two in the morning? But you just keep my phone off. <laughs> but thanks so much again for your time and your expertise and for inviting me in to work on the article with you. I just, I really do hope that this article and these predictions help people plan ahead and help them maybe make some assessments before it's too late. Absolutely. I hope you have a great 2023. Exciting year. Thank you, you guys as well. Thanks, you guys. Bye, Mary.
I was recently speaking to a new client whose company is a consumer-focused fintech. They're having significant fraud issues now, specifically at the time of onboarding. They're using a few standard companies for KYC, a scoring company that provides information on identity and synthetic ID fraud, a data verification company that mostly relies on public records data to verify the data points being used have been associated with the applicant in the past. And then they were using a company for document verification, which is clunky at best, expensive, and often inaccurate. So while this is a decent risk stack, they felt like they were missing some pieces of the puzzle to confirm identities of new users quickly and automatically. And also their AML investigator was in need of more tools to better investigate users with suspicious activity. So I asked if they'd ever heard of Sion. They hadn't. So I explained that Sion has two main products. One of their products is a comprehensive transaction risk analysis tool, and the other helps merchants have access to a user's digital footprint in a different way than standard data verification and data enrichment tools. They're often used together, but can be two separate products. Instead of accessing public records data and other data sources, CM delivers a full picture of a person based on their digital activity online. Through extensive email analysis, online social media analysis, IP and phone data, etc. And this tool can be connected to the majority of platforms and systems within hours, if not days. I suggested that this team sign up for an instant free trial to try it out and see if it will help fill out the gaps they've identified. And it did. They credited the value of Sion's data enrichment from social media platforms, online wish lists, and other data they received to identify if a new user has been active online for years or if their email address is recently created and not linked to the social media platforms unique to their country. So for you to try out Sion for free right now, you can go to sion.io forward slash demo. That is S-E-O-N dot I-O forward slash demo. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.